Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, thanks for joining us. On today's show, we have Dr. Bruce Lipton here to talk about our consciousness in creating our life experience. Ultimately, we manifest our beliefs. Our lives and our own health may be a manifestation of our belief system. In the prologue of Dr. Lipton's book, The Biology of Belief, he begins by asking, if you could be anybody, who would you be? I remember seeing that question on a colleague's desk when I was working in the hospital a couple years ago and being struck. Was I struck because I didn't feel in line with who I thought I could be? I was where I thought I would be, but why was the feeling inside of me not necessarily happy? Did I feel as if some of my fears got the better of me to self-limit my experiences? It's a tough question, but when we ask that question to our children, why do we expect them to be someone else and not themselves? Maybe who we are is not just limited to what we do for a living, but really who we are and how we truly live. When others asked me that question many years ago, who do you want to be when you grow up? I think my answer should have been me. I'm going to be me. It's a simple answer, but limitless and perhaps even powerful. When reading The Biology of Belief, I found it particularly funny that the book begins with his midlife crisis. Because in a silly way, I feel it validates my own. Or maybe people in midlife crisis mode like to feel like we're not alone and that perhaps there's a good reason to have done what we decided to do. Dr. Lipton is a scientist and a researcher in stem cell biology who taught at medical schools and had held a tenured position at the University of Wisconsin's School of Medicine when he resigned from his position. And just to be clear, the sheer majority of people with tenured positions do not resign. He later performed pioneering studies at Stanford University, which revealed that the environment operating through the membrane controlled the behavior and the physiology of the cell, turning genes on and off. His discoveries ran counter to the established scientific view that life is controlled by genes, and he is notable for his views on epigenetics. In the beginning of this interview, Dr. Lipton, quite honestly, reminds me of one of my more dynamic lecturers in medical school. I hope that you stay with the interview and listen to all of it, because he is laying a firm foundation of science to relay the truth, that the environment and the chemistry of love endorses health, while fear and stress does not and shuts down the body. Knowledge is power, and the lack of knowledge is a lack of power. Many of us can get stuck simply on the belief that that's all we deserve in life, and that we are fated to live a certain way because that's life. But what if, as Dr. Lipton says, 
There is no doubt that human beings have a great capacity for sticking to false beliefs with great passion and tenacity, and hyper-rational scientists are not immune. Biology's central dogma has been that life is controlled by genes, and it's only in the past 50 years as we have increased knowledge of the molecular mechanisms underlying the regulation of gene expression that we know that our behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way in which our genes work. According to the cancer.gov website, only 5-10% to of all cancer cases can be attributed to genetic defects, whereas the remaining 90-95% to have their roots in the environment and lifestyle. What you think and believe matters. And in today's conversation, it's presented to you from a more scientific perspective. And well, our belief affects the biology of our body and health. If the possession of the gene doesn't necessarily mean that you get the disease, but it's when our life is not in harmony that we can activate the gene that we don't want to activate, well, what are you going to do? What if real is what you create for yourself or what you have created for yourself? What if your consciousness is creating your life experience? What if life's experience is what your mind thinks that you deserve and it could be limiting instead of limitless and bountiful? Be mindful of the experiences that you are creating for yourself. Something that Dr. Lipton mentioned in the interview that I find so powerful, an indicator of where we are in our lives, is the act of looking at ourselves in the mirror and telling ourselves that we love ourselves. I mentioned this a couple times on the podcast, but some of the affirmations that I tell myself most mornings is, I love myself unconditionally. I love and approve of myself. When I started saying this four years ago, I was so uncomfortable. And when I looked in the mirror, I felt and knew that I was lying. I felt silly. I was cringing. It felt dumb to me, but I continued to look at myself and made these statements because Louise Hay said that it was a good thing. And even though I totally did not believe this four years ago, what I noticed over the last several years was mercy. If I had a difficult encounter with a patient or something bad happened, I didn't blame myself entirely. When I felt dumb, instead of berating myself, I was more forgiving and patient. I was better able to let go of things and learn from them and think about things more clearly. I'm also decent towards myself as I continue to wonder if there could be more to life than what we thought was possible. I think when we can look at ourselves in the mirror and tell ourselves that we love ourselves, it could be an indication that our consciousness is creating our life experiences in a good and healthy way. I think when we cannot, it may indicate that your belief is more self-limiting or perhaps that you may think that you're not worthy. I read a lot, and in everything I've read, the truth seems to be that we're all worthy. Of what, you say? I don't know. You can fill out the rest. What is meaningful to you? The truth is, we are all worthy, but it's actually us the humans that say and believe that we're not worthy. Carefully choose your beliefs because you will make it happen. That is your power. And as Dr. Lipton says in his book, 
You can take control of your life and set out on the road to health and happiness. And you can band together with others you meet on the road so that humanity can evolve to a new level of understanding and peace. Oh, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Bruce Lipton. I'm so greatly honored. Welcome to Lost or Found. I am so happy to be with you. I love rebels. You know, I was a rebel myself, and now I'm a happy guy. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, um, I I call myself a scientist. Why? Well, I was a scientist. I, I did scientific research at the University of Virginia, uh, where I was cloning stem cells. And you go, oh, yeah, stem cells. I go, listen, I was cloning stem cells 50 years ago. And I say, what do you mean? I go, there were only a handful of us in the whole world that even knew what the heck a stem cell was way back then. (laughs) So I was in a very unique opportunity to work with an experimental system that was really pretty much unknown at the time, cloning stem cells. Uh, And stem cells are embryonic cells. Uh, And so for those out there, Uh, A body is not a single thing. A body is made out of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity. So when I say Bruce, the word Bruce, that's not just a single thing. Bruce is 50 trillion cell community. Uh, Community is the big word. And I go, so why is it relevant? I go, well, we lose hundreds of billions of cells every day. I think we lose like a million cells a minute or something like that blood cells dying, skin cells dying, gut cells dying. I go, yeah, but then every day we're still here. Even if I'm losing hundreds of billions of cells, I say, well, how does that happen? The answer is I have stem cells. What are they? Embryonic cells. I say, what is their function? Every time cells die, my stem cells can replace them. So every day I die and every day I grow and every day I die and every day I grow. Uh, and uh, and everybody out there is, do I have stem cells? If you're watching this program or listening to this program, guess what? You have stem cells because if you didn't have stem cells, you would have been dead a long time ago if you weren't able to replace those cells. So, hey, I'm making a long story here, Michelle, but let's put it into a box. A stem cell is an embryonic cell. I put one cell in a dish. This is called cloning. And I say, why? Because that cell divides every 10 hours. So first there's one cell, then there's two, then there's four, then there's eight, 16, doubling, doubling, doubling. And I go, what's the significance? And the answer is this. After a week, I have 30,000 cells in the Petri dish. Yeah, but the most important fact is all those cells are genetically identical cells. They came from one parent. So I have 30,000 genetically identical cells. And I did this experiment. My whole life completely changed because I was teaching medical people the fact that genes control life. I have 30,000 genetically identical cells. I split them up into three Petri dishes. I put 10,000 cells into each dish. Now, all dishes, all the cells are genetically the same. But I changed what is called the culture medium composition. Culture medium, yes, that's what we grow cells in. I say, what is culture medium? The laboratory version of blood. So if I grow mouse cells, I look at what is mouse blood made out of, and then I make a synthetic version called culture medium for mice, uh, and when I do it for humans. So point, cells grow in culture medium, the equivalent of blood. But I can change the chemistry a little bit when I make the culture medium, so I can vary the composition a little bit. And I make three different versions. So I have three different versions of blood chemistry. 
And in one dish with version A, environment A, the cells form muscle. In a second dish where I give them a different culture medium and culture medium environment B, the cells form bone. And in a third Petri dish, again, all genetically identical cells in the dish, uh, I change the composition of the culture medium, the cells form fat cells. I say, oh, wait, my stem cells became bone, muscle, fat. What controlled that? And the first thing is this. They were all genetically exactly the same. So the first thing is I can't say, genes controlled that. No, they didn't control that. I said, what controlled? I said, the environment controlled the genes. The culture medium, whatever chemistry that was, the cells adjusted their genetics to conform to the chemistry of the culture medium. So all of a sudden, the first thing it says is, genes didn't control life. No, it was the environment, the culture medium. Well, this is all like scientific laboratory, blah, blah, blah. But let's put it into perspective for the audience. And that is this. I said your body is not a single entity. It's made out of 50 trillion cells. So you are a skin-covered Petri dish. You got 50 trillion cells inside the skin-covered dish. I go, but you also have the original culture medium. I said, what's that? I said, the blood. I say, why is it relevant? It doesn't make a difference if the cell is in a plastic dish or the cell is in a skin-covered dish. The fate of that cell is still controlled by the environment. And in the body, the original culture medium is that environment. I go, so what? Change the chemistry of the culture medium and change the genetics. I go, then we're going to get to a conclusion here, Michelle. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> and the conclusion is basically simply this. There's a chemist that adjusts the chemistry of your culture medium, your blood. I say, well, what chemistry should go into my blood? And here's the answer that was blow away when you get it. Whatever picture I have in my mind, the brain translates that picture into complementary chemistry, chemistry that represents that picture. Could be a picture of love, could be a picture of fear. I go, oh, that's a different chemistry. I go, what do you mean? Well, when you're feeling love, the brain is releasing wonderful things into your blood like dopamine, pleasure. That's why falling in love is so much fun, pleasure. Oxytocin is added to the blood, and that bonds you to your lover. Uh, a, a major thing when you're in love is growth hormone is released by the brain into the blood. And I go, so what is that? And I said, that's what makes you healthy. So I say, so what? When a person is in love, the chemistry from the brain that goes into the blood, which then goes to the cells, is chemistry of enhancement and vitality. So when people are in love, they're healthier. They glow. Oh, look, they're in love. See how they glow. And I go, that glow is vibrant health. I go, whoa, how'd that happen? I said, the chemistry of love endorses and supports health. I go, wait, what about the chemistry of fear? Oh, ha. <laughs> The, the love chemistry doesn't come out. When you're afraid, you, you release different chemistry in your blood. You release stress hormones. You release things that affect the immune system and vitality. And I go, when you're in fear, the chemistry actually shuts down the body as you get into protection. Remember, growth would be open. Take it in. Love. Yeah, yeah, be open. Take it in. Toxic environment? Oh, no. Close it down. Don't let it come in. So I say, what's the difference? Growth, open, protection, closed. Relevance, 
you can't be open and closed at the same time. <laughs> I guess so why is it relevant? Because if you are living in stress, if you're living in fear, then the chemistry that is coming from your brain is chemistry that does not support your growth or your immune system or your intelligence. Fear chemistry is a completely different response of a body. Not thinking, reacting, uh, muscles and legs, arms, that's what you use. You don't use your brain. You're not using your lungs and your heart so much. You know, I mean, you're using them to get the blood around, but not for nourishment of the body or taking care of the body. So here's a conclusion, and I keep talking, and you keep wanting to ask something or say something, but I will let you because you're a nice person, Michelle. <laughs> I will let you. But what is the conclusion? The conclusion is this. We have programmed belief that when we experience a disease, cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, we always have left with the belief that there's a failure of our mechanism that the genes are not supporting us as a cancer gene. I go, okay, first of all, there's no such thing as a cancer gene, so that's a really good start. Okay, but what's most important is, is this, is that when we're looking at health, it turns out less than 1%, less than 1% of disease is connected to genetics. I go, where's disease coming from? 90% of doctor office visits are due to stress. I go, why is that relevant? Because stress is what we create in our own lives. <laughs> stress, to, stress, you might say, is related to the outside. I say, no, it's related to your interpretation of the outside. The stress from the outside doesn't come in until the brain is in stress. I say, well, why is that? I say, stress chemistry doesn't support growth. I go, what do you mean? I say, a fact of fact. Fact, I love it. Stress hormones can serve energy to run away from the proverbial tiger. You're being chased, that's stress. I say, well, what do the stress hormones do? They shut down the functions of the body that are not necessary when running away from a tiger. And they push all the blood of the body into the arms and legs. I go, why? Because the blood is where the energy is. And if you're going to run away, you want rich energy blood in your arms and legs. I say, yeah, but where's the blood if I wasn't running away? I go, oh, it's in the gut, the stomach, the intestines, the lungs, the pancreas, the liver, kidneys. I go, what are they doing? I say, they're keeping you healthy. They're cleaning your body. They're maintaining yourself. I say, yeah, but if I'm being chased by a tiger, uh, I don't need an immune system. I mean, if I have an infection and the tiger catches me, what the heck do I need an immune system for? You know, the tiger's got the problem. I just lost it. But here's the point. And the point is simply this. To put the rich energy blood into the arms and legs, you have to take it from somewhere else because it's being used. So stress hormones shut off growth. And that's why people feel when they're, when they're afraid they get a, a butterflies in the stomach, a funny feeling. I say, you know what that funny feeling is? I'll tell you what it is. Stress hormones are squeezing the blood vessels shut. Why? Because that pushes the blood to the arms and legs. And so that queasy feeling you get when you're afraid is the actual stress hormones causing the blood vessels to shut off. You feel it fluttering. Ooh, I can feel it, okay? So first thing that happens, number one, stress hormones. Shut down the growth. Why? I don't need to grow if I'm running. If I escape the tiger, we're going to grow, okay? And I say, what else? 
the immune system uses tremendous energy. I go, what do you mean? I go, well, if you've been sick, maybe you never even had the energy to get out of bed. <laughs> because when you're sick, the energy in that immune system could use all that energy of the body to heal you. And I go, yeah, but if you're being chased by a tiger and you have a bacterial infection, do you want to protect yourself from both at the same time? I go, the heck with the bacterial infection, as I said. If the tiger catches you, bacterial infection is not a problem of yours. I go, so the first two things that happen when stress hormones are in the body is they shut down the growth and they shut down the immune system to conserve energy. I go, that sounds like a stupid idea, Mother Nature. Why would you do that? And the answer was, when the system was designed, the only threat we had was a saber-toothed tiger. That was the only one. I go, so why was it relevant? Well, if you escape the tiger, there's no more threat. So all of a sudden I say, so if you can escape the tiger 10 minutes of running or whatever, uh, and the tiger you escape, I say, guess what? No more reason to be in protection. You would go right back into growth. So I say, in the old days, stress was only used for very short periods of time to get out of an emergency. And I say, what about today? And I go, oh, well, there's the problem. Today's stress is, you know, 24, 70, you know, 365. It's every day. Constant perceived threat. Every day. Do I have enough money for food? Do I have enough money for healthcare? Do I have enough money mm -hmm. to pay for my room where I'm going to stay? Do, can I buy a piece of clothing? Uh, you know, it's like every moment is, can I survive? And I go, that's, that's stress. And that is why the major illness on this planet is not anything to do with genetics, but it has to do with a world that lives in stress. And, and talk about stress. And I say, well, isn't it interesting how this COVID stress, the stress has changed this world instantly. People don't talk to each other, keep away from each other and all that. And I go, yeah, that's not, that's not healthy. <laughs> that's, that's anti-growth. Evolution has come together in a community. COVID is don't have any community. I go, well, that's against our own evolution. And this is why it's necessary to recognize we are being scared to death by the public media that advertise you're going to die. Dr. Lipton, I really loved what you wrote in your book, The Biology of Belief, how cells can teach us so much. And it really impacted me greatly. I love how you were saying, you know, when you were talking just now, how, you know, we can choose our environment. And when you have a picture of, I don't know, like fear or fear inducing something in your head that we, it seems like what you were saying was like, we absorb it on every level to the point it starts in our brains and it goes even further to our subconscious and everywhere in our whole bodies. But, you know, that's what causes illness and our fear-based thoughts, what we perceive, our belief system. That's true. And, and the unfortunate part is when we buy the belief system of the conventional one source of science, Oh, uh, well, you're a victim of your genetics. You, you know, your, your fate is not controlled by you. You didn't pick the genes. You can't change the genes. You're told that the genes turn on and off by themselves. I say, put that consciousness in a story. And the story is this. I am a victim of my heredity. Oh, my God, there's cancer genes running. Woo you know, here, oh, diabetes genes running. I go, the genes control nothing. Control is the word. I go, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. Control means make a decision. And you say, oh, the genes turned on and off like they made a decision. I go, 
A gene is a blueprint to make a protein, which is a complex molecule. We have 100,000 different proteins, and they're very complex. They break down, but they have to be replaced every day continuously. And I say, well, you need a blueprint to make these complex proteins. I go, that's what DNA is. I go, so what? It's a blueprint. And I go, well, why is that relevant? I say, go to an architect's office. Let's say she's working on a blueprint, and you lean over her shoulder, and you say, hey, is there a blueprint on or off? She would look at you. Hey, it's a blueprint. There's no on and off. It's a blueprint. Precisely. Yeah. But with that architect, that blueprint may change and different architects will change the blueprint, you know? And I think what you say about life is so interesting as a father of epigenetics. You know, I, you know, I loved your analogy about the membrane and you were saying in your work, you know, not only does genes predetermine our fate, but our environment does. But in terms of the membrane, how, you know, in the past it was seen as a nucleus containing uh, DNA was thought of as the brain of the cell. But you in your work, you show and, and you talk about how actually the brain of the cell may be the membrane. And I think that's so relevant to our own lives. You know, with the gates and channels, we can choose what we let in and we can choose what we expel in our lives. And when we're not aware, you just kind of let all that stuff in, whether or not you want it or not. No, you're actually programmed. Uh, what comes in and, and how you respond is a program. It's not necessarily in the genetics. Genetics is basic. If you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, you don't have to learn that program. That's built in, man. You're going to run like crazy. That's built in. But how you deal with a job, how you deal with a neighbor, how you deal with the relationship or your own child, uh, these are rules and these are behaviors. And I go, are they genetic? And I go, no, they're learned. And I go, well, let, let's go back a simple point, and, and that is this. A brain is a computer. That is exactly what it is. It's the most advanced computer that humans have ever recognized exists. I go, so why is it relevant? I go, it's a computer. And I go, so what? And I say, buy a computer, take it home, push start, and it boots up. The light comes on. The screen comes on. Brand new computer. I say, now do something. Um, spreadsheet. Uh, get online. Surf. Uh, make a drawing. Uh, and you go, oh, no, I can't do that. I said, but you got a brand new computer. And they say, well, not until what? I put the programs in. Can I use a computer? A computer without programs is useless. And I go, a brain is a computer. It boots up in the last trimester of pregnancy. It's ready. The screen's on, ready to go. And I go, what can a child do with this brain? I say, nothing. Why not? Same as a brand new computer. <laughs> it boots up. So what? First, you have to install programs. And once you have installed programs, then you can interface the programs. So I say, so where are the programs? What are the programs? I go, the subconscious mind is a hard drive, just like in a computer. It puts programs in there. Now, some are built into the system, instincts, okay? But others have to be learned. Walking. Walking is a program. I go, yeah, and you had to learn it. As an infant, you had to learn how to stand up and move without falling down. You practiced. Until the learning of the system said, yes, if I hold myself this way, I can walk and move and not fall down. I go, you learned how to walk. I said, where's the program? I say, it's in the subconscious mind. I go, great. You know why? Because once it's a program, I don't have to relearn it. I could be 100 years old and still walk. I said, yeah, but when did you get the walk program? I say, before I was two. 
So I say, ah, then the programs that go in last for a long time. I go, yes. And then here comes the other problem. You get the programs by observing your mother, your father, your family, and your community. I go, what do you mean? I say, because there's behavior required to be a member of a family. There's behavior special required to be a member of community. And in fact, if you grew up in this community, you might have these behaviors, but if you grew up in that community, you have different behaviors. It's not genetic. It's a learned. So I say, how do you learn a behavior? And all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, the first seven years is download. First seven years of your life, your brain is predominantly in a vibration called theta. And just what does that mean? I say, People know you put wires on a person's head. You could read their EEG, electroencephalograph. You can read their brain function like inside their head, okay? Uh, and, and I say there are different levels of vibration corresponding to different levels of consciousness. And a child spends most of its life up through age seven in a lower vibration than consciousness, okay? It's called theta. Uh, theta is characterized as imagination. I go, yeah, kids under seven live in a real and an imaginary world at the same time. They could have a tea party, pour nothing into that cup, drink the nothing, and go, that was the best tea I ever had. I go, that is theta in behavior. Imagination in real world, okay? But theta is hypnosis. So what does it mean? For the first seven years, a child's brain is like a video recorder. It watches the mother, watches the father, watches the community, watches what they're doing, downloads it just like a videotape, boom, into what? The hard drive, a program. How does a, how does a, a father behave? Watch your father. How does the mother behave? Oh, watch your mother. And I go, then you download these behaviors. So I say, then the fundamental programs in your brain computer didn't come from you. They came from other people. I go, so why Someone is Someone else's relevant? program. <laughs> and the relevance is this. Did they create the world that you want? I go, not necessarily. My parents really sucked at relationship, and I copied them. I got bad relationship program. So I didn't get the world I wanted by copying them. And I say, but all of us, every one of us, had to copy a behavior to get a program. But when you copy a behavior, that program then by definition did not come from you. It came from those around you. And I say, did they have your wishes and desires in mind when they created the program? I go, nah. <laughs> I go, so why is it relevant? Because you have wishes and desires, but your program doesn't match those. I think that's a really profound point that you make because, you know, if we were really programmed and you kind of like live by a state where our gates are open and we just take it in, I think in order to really realize what a resilience is as a human, there's almost a period of unprogramming that needs to occur to be more conscious of 100%, what's going in and out. 100%, Michelle. Why? Well, I can tell you, I've had two distinct lives, two distinct lives in this one lifetime. The one before I became aware of the program versus the one that uh, my life after understanding the program and being able to change the program. Previous life, stressful. Current life, not the kind of stress I had before. I, I, I love my life. I wake up every day going, oh my God, I'm still here. This is a great opportunity. Because at some level, we're so programmed to say, well, th this is where you work real hard. And then when you work really hard, when you die, you can go to heaven. 
<laughs> like we're supposed to suffer for all of our lives. Yes, and that is a whole stupid point because when you understand the new biology, mm-hmm. this is heaven. What do you mean it's heaven? Yeah. I go, heaven is a place of wishes and desires manifest. And I say, you can talk to any 10 people and say, give me a description of heaven. You're going to get 10 different answers. Why? It's a personal creation. So mm-hmm. I say, is there one heaven that answers everybody's everything? I go, no. Each of us is have a different heaven. I said, well, then how do you find that heaven? I go, you're in it. <laughs> this is where you came to create. And then you look around and go, yeah. but I wouldn't have created the health problem. And I wouldn't have created the social problem. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't do that. And I go, your program that you down yeah, but you lived like i mean there's a lot of people who live the life of working really hard and feeling the chest pain when you didn't have to work like that too. right that but was that was a, a belief system and then it because so here's the point when you're under seven you download programs and that becomes the fundamental behavioral programs like word drawing a spreadsheet uh you know internet these are programs you can work with but the programs that you got didn't come from you. So if your teacher, your mother, your father, your siblings, community, if they teach you information that is not supportive of you, that's still your program. (laughs) Why? Because when you're being programmed, you're not there. Your conscious mind isn't working. So whatever is coming in and being downloaded, you don't even have an idea about it because you are not there. So, you know, look, you were programmed the last trimester of pregnancy. Yes. A baby's programmed to eat a diet based on what the mother's eating. Okay. Uh, A program, a child is programmed to respond to the world the way the mother responds to the world. Why? If the world is safe and supportive, then that baby developing inside as in the chemistry of growth and happiness, and this supports a healthy baby. But if the mother is under stress, and and responding like fight or flight and all that. And I go, her blood chemistry has got stress hormones in it. I go, yeah, that's why she's behaving like this. I go, but the fetus is using the same blood and responds to the same chemistry. And I say, so what's the point? I say, well, we already mentioned, uh, when, when you're in fear, uh, your growth system is shut down because you're getting ready to run. Uh, when you're in fear, your immune system is shut down because it's too much energy to use when you need the energy to run away. And then there's a third one, which is like, I call it insult on top of injury. The injury from (laughs) immune system shut down, the injury from the growth system shut down. And I go, what's the, uh, the thing on top of that? You know, I go, when you're in fight or flight, there's two parts of the brain. There's the conscious part of the brain. This is where our consciousness, our spirituality, our identity is right behind here called prefrontal cortex, part of the brain that sticks out right here. Okay. The rest of the brain back here is the hard drive. Okay. So I go, so why is it relevant? When you are in a stress moment, listen to this. Remember I told you the blood vessels in the gut squeeze shut to push the blood to the hind, to the arms and legs. Okay. The same stress hormones cause the blood vessels in the thinking part, the conscious part, to squeeze shut. I go, why? Because it's going to push the blood to the hindbrain, which is reflex, which is fast. I go, why is it relevant? I go, consciousness is very slow as a computer. It's a very slow computer. I go, if you're in an emergency situation, 
the, the consciousness is, doesn't work fast enough to help you. Uh, yeah, I always get illustration like you're in a car and you're driving and the car goes out of control. Two, two responses. Car goes out of control, but I stay in my conscious mind. And here's my response. Oh, that's my response. It's like I'm overwhelmed at the fear of what's happening. I say, when that happens, the stress hormones take the blood vessels and squeeze them shut. I'm not thinking, but my blood is going to the hindbrain, which is reaction. And that's why all of a sudden I start to go in the skin. And then I say, no, I'm turning the wheel and hitting the brake and gas and doing It's like, wow, I went so fast. I go, because that's subconscious. It's fast. Conscious is slow. So I, I say, summary, what does stress do? Shuts down the growth, shuts down growth, shuts down the immune system, and shuts down intelligence. Because <laughs> thinking is too slow when you're running, okay? So when people are in fear, they're not using consciousness. They're just using reflex, reaction, no thinking. I got to go fast, whatever it is. I'm not thinking. And I go, that makes us less intelligent. And I go, so what's the consequence? I say, broadcast fear to a nation every day, broadcast fear. I say, what do you think is going to happen to that nation? Well, first of all, they're going to become stupid. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because they're going to look for an answer, not from themselves, but somebody else give me the answer because I can't, I can't get there. I'm a victim. So then you take and blood was literally diverted elsewhere in their bodies. Yeah, and they're suffering the consequence of stress, ninety percent of illness coming mm -hmm. from that. Okay, and, and and I say, so what's the significance about all this? And I say, we have lost power. We have given up our power to other authorities that we believe mm -hmm. are going to protect us. I go well, and we're not aware of our own power because we traded it off from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's saying, who am I? What do I? I'm just a guy. But that's yeah. the doctor. That's the the president. Uh, I'm just me. And all of a sudden, it means I give up my truth to those people and whatever they say is true. And all of a sudden, yeah. But what if those people are not friendly? I go, uh, I'm sorry, because <laughs> you just lost your power. And this is why, as you just mentioned, most of us are totally disempowered. Uh, and we yeah. believe that our life is not in our control. Who are we? We're just victims of a world. And I go, that visual picture translated into chemistry has taken away your power. I find what you say so interesting because having been in primary care, I know a lot of people live in stress. That really is the truth. You know, a lot of the conditions that people come in with is stress related, but due to this short visit, there's really nothing that the, the provider can really do except, you know, it's become a pill culture, a medicine culture, you know, but I think what you say in regards to the perceived threat, the perceived threats that we live by. I think we need to be more aware of what's real and not for us. Well, th this is the whole thing that we're working on right now is to recognize what's real and what's not. I say real is what you create. You, if you feel there's a reason to be afraid and there's fear, then you will create a biology that will match and complement that fear. And, and in fact, Michelle, you're so darn right. Look, I'm old enough to go back and, uh, and teaching medical students at a time. Guess what? When the main practice of medicine was called family practice. Where I said, what was that? I said, a doctor works in a community and works not with a patient, but works with a family. 
knowing the dynamics of the mother, the father, the siblings, and understanding the dynamics from a doctor's point of view puts a bigger picture into what's going on in that person's life. It's absolutely true, yes. And then you say, well, what about today? I go, well, you got two and a half minutes. What'd you figure out? <laughs> I go, two and a half minutes? I didn't even get a chance to say hello. <laughs> and I go, we lost the value of family practice because everyone wants to be a specialist. And I go, specialists cause all the problems in some sense because they don't see the rest of the body. Oh, I work on the kidney. You got a bad kidney. I'm going to fix your kidney. I go, yeah, but if you fix my kidney with a drug that affects my nervous system, now you're not just mm -hmm. affecting the kidney. Yeah, but I don't deal with nervous system. I just fix kidney. <laughs> I go, exactly. Then many people are on multiple prescriptions where one prescription aimed to fix part problem A side effects causes B. So you get another medicine to deal with the side effect, which deals with that, but then causes another side effect. And I go, oh my God, you, we can't regulate mm -hmm. the biology with our, that, that we don't, we don't have enough technical information in medicine to manipulate a person's biology, their chemistry. Uh, and when we start to put something inside the body, I say, man, you're, 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 that's a monkey wrench in the machine. You don't even know how this machine works. You still think genes turn on and off? You're so far out of date. And I go, why is it relevant? Because most people are, including physicians. And I go, so why? Well, Michelle is one who woke up and said, this isn't working. I go, no, of course it's not working. And a fact of science for all of our non-medical people out there, fact of science, you ready? Medicine, allopathic medicine, is the third leading cause of death in the United States. First, it's cardiovascular. Iatrogenic. It's iatrogenic, but yeah. people don't know what is iatrogenic. Oh, I, I think I mm -hmm. got a bad case of iatrogenic. <laughs> no, no. Iatrogenic <laughs> means an illness as a result of medical treatment. Uh, and this was published first in, uh, God, in 2000. Uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Barbara Starfield wrote an article and gave the statistics and said, on the conservative level, medicine is the third leading cause of death. Well, that was 20-some years ago, but just two years ago, the British Medical Journal did the same study, and guess what? After all that time, medicine is still the third leading cause of death. I'm not against medicine. I'm just against pharmaceutical medicine because that's what's happened. That medicine is given, okay, uh, whatever the pharmaceutical company says, that's what we're gonna do. They said, give that drug, and we're gonna give that drug, and go, who the hell are pharmaceutical people? And I go, yeah, they're not your friend. Go, oh. <laughs> the priority is much, much different. You know, I'm definitely in the point in my career where I'm wondering if allopathic medicine isn't the only field of medicine that you know merits consideration. And I think sometimes with the way in which we practice medicine these days, you know, it, we forget that there is a brain in that body. We're so like symptom specific that we really forget that it, there's a community effect, yes. that there's a brain on top of that body. And we fail to ask, you know, like even beginning with open-ended questions, who, what, when, where, and why, Yeah. why is it going on? It's really a symptom-based medicine that we practice. That's the problem. And the problem is if you take the brain out of the picture, move it out, and try to understand what's going on in the body, you're only left at what? Genes. Well, they control <laughs> the body. I go, no, well, that's where the whole thing is wrong because 
It's the consciousness that controls the genes. That's epigenetics, the new science, the revolution, a revolution that undoes the entire foundation of victim medicine. I'm a victim of genes. I'm a victim of environment. I'm a blah, blah. No, you're a victim of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And maybe when we oversimplify, that's when we like give our power away. It's genes or, you know. What do we know? It's like, yeah. We acquire knowledge. And I say, here's an important point. Knowledge is power. Yep, that's true. More knowledge, more power. (laughs) I go, yeah, but you know what is a more important way to say the same thing? But it says the same thing, but it's a different way of saying it. And I go, a lack of knowledge is a lack of power. And I go, so why is that relevant? I said, well, what if you got misinformation and you call it knowledge and you operate from misinformation as knowledge and then create a life based on misinformation? Well, then your life is not in harmony with the real world because you're following a belief that's not even true. You know, like, Oh, there are cancer genes. I go, ah, there's not one gene that causes cancer. There's not one gene. You have that gene, you're going to get cancer. No, genes are percentages of cancer in a sense. I say, uh, Angelina Jolie, a beautiful young woman, her mother died of uh, breast cancer, her grandmother died of breast cancer. She says, okay, I got the BRCA gene. I could die of breast cancer, so I'm going uh, to stop it. I said, how you do that, Angelina? I have a double mastectomy. I remove both of my breasts, so I cannot have breast cancer. I go, well, that's misleading because the same gene causes uterine and ovarian cancer as well. Uh, but I say, so why is it relevant? Because, well, I got the gene. I'm going to get the cancer. And I go, 50% of the women with a BRCA gene never get cancer. I say, stop for one moment. I say, there's the most important fact, fact. Possession of the gene doesn't mean you get cancer. No, the gene doesn't cause cancer. But if your life is not in harmony, then that gene may be activated. So all of a sudden it says, you can have a gene, so-called cancer gene, but never get the cancer if you're living in health and happiness and harmony. But if your life is not in a a stress-free thing like that, then that gene will then be called in and expressed as cancer when the gene itself didn't cause it. That's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like the over-anxious patient, you know, who's like 30 years old, and she tells herself, I'm going to get cervical cancer at age 40. So did she predict it or did she will it, you know? Well, (laughs) the idea was uh, she willed it. I say, why? Well, if my life is a reflection of what my consciousness is, and I say at consciousness 40, I get cancer, you have set a clock in your brain that not in your conscious mind, it's subconscious, because the subconscious is the one that bought the program. And now you've got a clock, and it's running down, and it's going to say, as it unfolds, as you get to 40, we're going to start to express that belief that you've been programming. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, man, we are creators. Oh, and you go, oh, that's so new agey. I go, no. You know why? Most valid science on this planet, the science with the most truth, the science that has been tested beyond any other science and verified at every test, is the science of quantum physics. I go, so what? Well, that's the weird physics. I go, weird enough to have this as the first principle, and that is, Consciousness is creating our life experience. I go, 
That is a fact of the most valid science on the planet. I go, so why is it relevant? Well, you want to blame the world for your experience. I go, no, first we have to understand you are creating your experience because that is quantum physics. Consciousness is creating this. Epigenetics, the new science, is the science of, oh, now we understand in biology how consciousness has changed the genetic activity below us because the consciousness is manipulating the genes. And, uh, and quantum physics and epigenetics both now recognize the same valid truth. We are creating it. I go, so why is it a problem? Well, if you look at the creation and you don't like what's going on, and then you have to, that person did it, and this people did it, and that's who's responsible. I go, we are creating this. And until we take our power back, we will buy other people's creations, which do not support us at all. And we don't even know it. Because we think our consciousness, we're in control. And then that's where the science reveals 5% of the day, just 5% of the day is the conscious mind, wishes and desires mind in control. 95% of the day, your life is not controlled by your wishes, desires, conscious, creative mind. 95% of the day, you are playing the programs that you got in especially the first seven years. How much of your mind do you think should be controlled by the conscious mind then? All of it. <laughs> <laughs> Why well, well, is that? That's called being mindful. I said, when you, first question that has to be answered is, how come only 5% of my life is controlled by the creative conscious mind? Because I say, oh, okay. Well, the conscious mind has two functions, being creative and also being able to think. I go, what's the mm -hmm. difference? Being creative is looking out at the world and saying, this is what I want. Honeymoon, love, health, happiness. That's what I want. That's creative. And I go, and what about subconscious? I go, oh, you got these programs already. Not smart enough, not strong enough, not worthy enough, not lovable. These are the criticisms that we got when we were kids. And I say, and that's running 95%. Why? Because we spend 95% of our time thinking with the conscious mind. Very special function. I go, but why is it relevant? Because thinking is not looking out at the world. Thinking is looking inside. I say, uh, hey, Michelle, today's Monday. Uh, tell me what you're, what you're doing on Thursday. It's not written in front of you, but in a moment you will go, oh, let's say you go into your mind and you say, oh, what am I doing Wednesday, Thursday? And then you say, oh, on Thursday I'm doing this. I go, where'd you get the information? It wasn't written here. I said, oh, it's inside. I said, well, how did you see it? Because I took my conscious mind, instead of looking out, I took it and started looking in. I go, yeah, but if the conscious mind's like the driver, the, the mind that's got the steering wheel taking us to wishes and desires. I'm driving to wishes and desires. And I go, until you're thinking. I go, then what happens? You let go of the wheel because consciousness is not looking out. Consciousness is now looking in. So what's going on on the outside? And I go, it's not random because subconscious is autopilot. When I start thinking, subconscious grabs the wheel. I go, and where's it going to drive me? And I go, well, not to wishes and desires because you got the program from other people going to drive you to their problem, problem, their program, their problem, your program, now your problem. And the issue is 95% of the day, we are operating from programs, most of which are not supportive. And I go, yeah. And I go, and now comes back to what you mentioned. I said, 
what if I if I'm not going to use those programs? I say, well, how how do you live without using those programs? The answer is, stop thinking. Why? It's when you think is when you let go and the program takes over. You go stop thinking. Yeah, that's called being mindful. Mindful means staying in the present moment. The movie The Matrix I always talk about is not a science fiction movie. It is the documentary. I say, what do you mean? Because the premise of the movie is everybody's been programmed. I go, oh, that's not a premise. That's a fact of life. You couldn't be here if you didn't get that first seven years of programming. So everybody got programmed, okay? But in the movie, they say, well, there's a blue pill and a red pill. If you take the blue pill and you wake up, you're back in the program just like every day. So everyday life is right here. But if you take the red pill, you get out of the program. I said, what happens if you get out of the program? And I go, well, most everybody out there who's on this line listening to us, if they're over teenage years and they've been a little bit of a live, they probably had a moment where they fell in love. Maybe not lasted, but there was a moment where they fell in love. And I go, what does that mean? I go, well, every day their life was like blah, 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 blah. And on this day, they fall in love. And guess what? 24 hours later, their life is not blah, blah, blah. Their life is, oh, heaven on earth. I'm so in love. My food is great. My music is great. Even, even the crummy job is not crummy anymore. I'm so in love. And I go, what are you doing? I say, you creating heaven on earth. What's a honeymoon? What's honeymoon? You're so in love that you're living it without thinking it. That's how you got to have a honeymoon. You stayed in the present moment. I mean, the point is simple. If you've been looking for a partner and they show up, would this be a time to think and disconnect? I go, no, this is time to stay present and be there with this partner. And I go, that period is called the honeymoon. I say, what is the honeymoon? Simplest definition, heaven on earth. I go, so you went blah, 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 blah. And then in 24 hours of falling in love, heaven on earth. I go, how'd that happen? Because science has recognized when you fall in love, that is the red pill. You stop thinking. You stay mindful. Then guess what? Now your life is not controlled by program. It's controlled by creative conscious mind. I say, what does creative conscious mind want? Heaven on earth. And I say, well, you manifested honeymoon. And I go, that was the exact issue of what happens if you stop playing the damn program. And I go, so why is it relevant? Well, heaven on earth is here every day, <laughs> except for the fact if you're playing the program, you won't see it. Do you think joy is an indicator that you're not living in the play program or you're playing the program? Joy? Mm -hmm. I would think joy is a moment where you are taking in the things you love and desire and you're experiencing them. Now, here, let's step back a second because it doesn't mean you're not playing a program, okay? I'll say why. When we get our programs, okay, uh, they're all they're, some some of the things are good and some of the things are not good. I say, well, how do I know? So here's I'm going to tell you why. Because when you were programmed, recognize this: a, it was before you were born, and you weren't even conscious, so you have no idea what the hell the program was because you weren't there. And I say you were you were programmed through age seven, which is a fact. And I go, so why is that relevant? I say, well, Michelle, you and I have been programmed. We were programmed at the moment starting our conception. And I go. Okay, uh, what what are those programs? I go, how do I know what the program was? It was going down when I wasn't there, and I didn't filter it. So I got good programs, I got bad programs. I said, so here's how you tell what your program is for all those out there that 
Okay, I've been programmed. What is my program? Here you go. Look at your life. The things that you like that come into your life, they come in because you have a program to acknowledge those things. Now, the things that you want, wish for, desire, but you have to work hard. You have to struggle over it. I'm going to put a lot of, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to put a lot of effort in. I'm going to make it happen. I said, why are you working so hard? And here comes a beautiful answer. Because whatever that destination you're seeking, your programs that you got do not support that. And as a result, you're trying to override your program. I go, well, that's a struggle because your program is running 95% of the day. And, and it's very difficult. You can't really easily override it. You have to work real hard. And then the moment you give up the effort, of doing that hard work, it'll all go back to where it was before. A person wants to lose weight. Oh, they'll struggle. They'll put every effort and they'll sweat over it. They'll do all the crappy things they don't want. And look, I finally got to the weight I like. And then the moment they let go of working, the weight will come right back on. Why? The weight is a program inside that says, this is your weight. This is what you learned. If you were abused as a child, you have more weight. I say, why? Because that's protection. More weight is protection. Less people are going to involve you if you're overweight. So all of a sudden I say, you're overweight and you want to change it, and you think by changing the diet, that's how you're going to lose weight? And I go, first of all, are you under stress? <laughs> because the stress will put the weight on. If you don't resolve the stress, I don't care how much dieting you do over here, the stress is ultimately going to win. And so, so the point about it is this, we, look at your life and, and just recognize the things that you really enjoy that come in. It's not by accident. They come in because your program acknowledges that. But again, then it comes down to if you're not fulfilling your wishes and desires in your trying, then the issue is then why am I failing? And the answer is simple. Your program doesn't support that. And that's why you're trying to work real hard to change the program. And you can change the program. Now, of course, I already know what the next question is going to come, but you can change that program. And when you change that program, you can rewrite the script of your life. You know, actors do this. People don't recognize it. Actors can take on a character, which is a personality. It's a belief person. It's a way of life. A character has a way of life. And a really good actor, when they take on a character, take on the character's way of life in their consciousness. They become the character. They live it. They, they physiologically, neurologically become that. Uh, uh, Renelle Zellweger, I mean, she played a part that she had to be 40 pounds overweight. A woman who had the consciousness of what? She put on 40 pounds to do her movie. And then what? When the movie was over, the character disappeared. She went back to her own character, her own natural program, lost the 40 pounds. She put it on to become the character. And when the character was no longer present, she went back to the original weight that she came from. Or, or someone like Dustin Hoffman, he played, uh, uh, I think, When the Iceman Cometh or something. That's the name of a, a very famous play about a depressed character. Uh, uh, and he played it so good that Dustin Hoffman had to go to a neurological institute to recover from what? Becoming the character. He became Willie Loman, the depressed guy. So much so that he became so depressed he had to go to the hospital. And I go, so what? And I go, 
that an actor can do that. And I say, how'd they do that? They change the picture of what they are and the, to fit the story. I go, we are actors in our lives. You don't like the character you're playing? Pick a new character. Become that <laughs> character. And as you practice and become that character, your biology, your behavior, your physiology, all of this will change to accommodate what the new character is. That's what supreme actors do. And we are of the same same biology, except that you have to put in a program that you want to be real and then live on that program and then it becomes real. And you can change it. And I love what you say, Dr. Lipton. And you asked this question in your book, who do you want to be? Yes. And if the answer is me, and you don't really know what me is, then just maybe put in the traits that you like and go from there. Yeah, that was the basic idea. And the idea is to look at your life and look in the Here's what the hardest thing for most people to do, really. And that is what? Stand in front of a mirror, look at yourself in that mirror, and tell yourself how much you love that person. I love that person in that mirror. That's a great person. I go, why, why are you doing that? Because if you can love yourself, then you can control your biology. If you don't love yourself, you're already under control. And the idea is loving yourself is the hardest thing for most people. Because as I mentioned, uh, during the programming period, which is zero, uh, last trimester of pregnancy through age seven, uh, parents act like coaches that, you know, that make you do better. And I say a coach on a team doesn't go, if a player is doing really badly on a team, you, the coach doesn't go up and go, oh, please do better for us. We would love you to do better. No, no. The coach comes up and goes, that's not good enough. Who do you think you are? You don't deserve to be on this team. And I go, oh, a player on a team then, but is older than seven, can think. See, under seven, mm -hmm. record. Over seven, think. So a child over seven in a, in a team, when told that by the coach, interprets the meaning going, oh, okay, I'm not doing the best job. And the coaches, you know, encourage me to do the best job. I said, but if a parent acts as a coach to get the younger kid under seven to conform and says the exact same thing the coach says, I go, but a child under seven is not in conscious to interpret. A child under seven is recording. So what the, the difference is, a coach talking to a child older than seven, the child recognizes, oh, I'm the one that's not really performing well. When a child's under seven and gets the same direction from the coach, it's like, I'm not good enough. It's not a question that I, I could do better. I am being programmed. I am not worthy. I am not desired. I am not lovable. I go, well, the parents were thinking if I you know, stick you with that, you're going to go, okay, I'm going to be better. I go, but the child can't be better if a child doesn't understand the interpretation of it. The child just records the words, I'm not lovable. I don't deserve. I go, if I don't deserve as a program, and you got that, what, at five years of age because uh, you, had a, uh, you were at Kmart and you saw this toy and you had a big crying thing, I want the toy, and the parents said, you don't deserve that toy, and you were five years old. I said, what's the program? I do not deserve. I go, guess what? Now you're 50 years old. <laughs> and I go, so what does that mean? I still got the same damn program. I'm not deserving. And so 95% of the day, if I'm operating from a belief I do not deserve, 
my mind will create a reality that matches the belief. If I believe I'm not worthy, then my mind will prove, yes, you're right, you're not worthy. Uh, Because the job of the mind is to make that belief real. Consciousness creates our reality. If I have a consciousness I'm not worthy, the job of the behavior is to demonstrate that's true. I go, what if I got a program that I'm the most wonderful, successful, powerful, intelligent person? Then I go, oh, well, then 95% of the day, your program will support that. But we didn't get that. Most of the programming we got is disempowering and negative, and, uh, and, and we live. Look, I got the how to walk before I was two. I'm 100 years old. I'm still using the same program. I got that I don't deserve at age five. I'm 100 years old. I've still got the same program. So all of a sudden, it's like you're not living your life. You're living your program. And maybe someone else's program, <laughs> you know? But this this is the game. And the question is, just look at your life. If you're not happy with it, stop blaming the outside and start recognizing underneath there's a program that's not supporting you because you're creating quantum physics, epigenetics. You're creating this. So rather than blaming, well, those people interfere with me, I go, no, you were shooting yourself in the foot all day long with the bad program you came with. And then you're looking at other people and blaming them because you don't see it. Why? It's called subconscious, sub, below. Programs are below consciousness. It's not a thinking thing. It's just automatic. Push the button, boom, you're playing it. Do you think it's ever too late to change no. our uh, no. program or belief system? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I changed mine when I was like 45, 50, and I uh, changed it, and my life dramatically virtually instantaneously the character of my life changed boom walk away change program different life just walk away you can change a belief if you understand how to do it you can change a belief in minutes and walk away a different person than the one minutes before what if you walk away and you get scared what would you tell that person well if they get scared Oh, as they're walking away. (laughs) Then you didn't change your life because if there was a fear in there somewhere, you're still operating from some fear that you're going to manifest. Why? Very important, very short phrase. You ready? This is it. Put this in bold print, okay? The function of the mind is to create coherence between your belief and your reality. If my belief is I do not deserve, then the function of the mind is to generate a lifestyle that will reveal to me that I do not deserve. Then everybody's happy. Brain said I do not deserve. Life is I do not deserve. Everything's in harmony, okay? So basically it says that the function of the mind is just take that program and manifest it. And I go, well, what if, as which is believed to be, 70% of the downloaded programs have taken away my power. Uh, you know, made me a victim of other people's programs. I go, well, then it's not your life anymore because your mind is going to take those programs and manifest them. And then you see your life as not being anything you wanted. I go, yeah, because that wasn't in the program what you wanted. What was in the program is what they did. (laughs) And I go, well, they didn't answer your life. And now you're living their life. And cancer runs in a family. And it's interesting, again, why? Because I said, there's no cancer gene. I go, well, what did it show? They found that when a child is adopted into a family where there's cancer running in that family, 
The adopted child will get the same family cancer, but they came from totally different genetics. What's the point? The genes didn't cause the cancer. It was the programming that caused the cancer. And you want to get rid of cancer, then everybody wants to kill the cancer cells. I say the cells are just responding to the program. If you want to get rid of the cancer, don't kill the cancer cells. Change the program. But we don't believe in that in our conventional allopathic medicine because we've separated mind from body from the very beginning. And it's always been hard to put mind back into the body. And there was one pesky thing that bothered them for 75 or 100 years, and that is the placebo effect. I go, what does that mean? I go, that is totally the mind healing the body when you got a pill that you thought was the drug and it turned out to be a sugar pill. And I said, well, then what heals you? Belief in that pill. Not the pill, the belief in that pill. And we talked about placebo. Yeah, that's a positive belief that heals you. And then as you brought up, and we didn't get that much into it, but it's the most important one of all things. So in closing our our hour here, the most important thing is this. Placebo is a result of a positive thought. Healing because I believe I'm going to get healed. And then I go, and what about nocebo? I go, well, that's the consequence of a negative thought. It's equally powerful. If I believe I'm going to die in 30 days from cancer, then I will die in 30 days even if I don't have the cancer. And all of a sudden it's like, wait, you mean negative beliefs are important? I go, ha, they're equally powerful to positive beliefs. Except then you look at the ratio of our negative to positive beliefs, we find that the negative beliefs outweigh the positive beliefs. And therefore our life becomes what? An expression of our belief. Where did that belief come from? from other people. (laughs) And I think we really need to be aware of what we do to other people because that could be something that they live by. And I love what you said about the placebo effect because it's not given enough credence in medicine. But there's a self-healing element that's possible in the placebo effect that we should all be aware of. Absolutely. And that's a disempowering thing. Well, it's not true. It's not your belief. I go, yes, it is your belief on causing the disease or healing the disease. The first thing was not the genes, they're down here, genes down here, but the control epigenetics above the genes is in here, which then controls down here. And I say, why is it relevant? I say, what's your belief? Oh, I believe I'm going to get the cancer because it's in the family. I go, well, I'm sorry. It's a bad belief, but you're going to manifest it. You're going to manifest it. And I go, well, how about if you believe in heaven on earth? I go, you can manifest that too. Heaven on earth. I love that. I want to acknowledge you, Michelle, because uh, very few of us have the gumption to have a career. And I recognize maybe this career is not supporting what I thought it was when I got into this career. And then make a decision as vital as I'm going to step outside of this. And I go, that is, excuse me, a ballsy response a very powerful response that I am going to take my life into my own hands, regardless of the story that other people will say. And I go, that's the most important thing. So thank you for being an expression of that because people need to see that. That's a very brave thing to do. Very brave. Thank you. I'm discovering what it means. But I think, you know, when I was living that life, I kept on thinking about how I was going to die. And I think that was enough for me. Yeah, that's enough of that one, baby. I'm thinking of how I'm going to live. I'm not. I'm done. I'm, 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 I can I'm, imagine my death yeah, here. I'm, I'm not even bothering that part because 
if I have a chance to live heaven on earth and I want to do it every day that I can, because inevitably this will end. And when it ends, I don't want to have to lay, oh my, I'll, I'll tell this last story and then I'll get off. Um, my mother got a divorce from my father years ago, which actually was a good thing. <laughs> but then she, she married somebody else. And um, he was a curmudgeon. He was an unhappy guy, very unhappy. And I couldn't stay around him that long because he was always, these people are bad and these people are problems. And, and I, I couldn't stay there very much. But the point that was interesting, he lived to about, I think, 95 or 96. And he had cancer when he died. And in the last couple of weeks of his life, my mother took care of him at home instead of sending him to a hospital to die, took care of him mm -hmm. at home. And like the last week, he wasn't really there. You know, he was just sort of like body, but not really there. And the day before he died, all of a sudden his eyes opened and there was a bright, he was there. He was there. Mm -hmm. And he looked at my mother and he said this, I didn't have any fun. 90, wow. 95 years old, dying tomorrow with the realization on the last day of his life, he didn't have any fun. And I go, what a miserable existence, 95 years of not having fun in a life. And the point about it was like, that's a program, and he died with that program. And mm -hmm. I decided, I'm going to run this machine till the wheels fall off, and I'm going <laughs> to do it and have fun every day. And if I don't like what it is, then I'm not going to do it. And all of a sudden, I started to think, I am going to control. I don't want to conform. So that's one of the reasons why I walked out of the university with tenure. Why? Because it wasn't my life, even though I was free to be there for the rest of my life and tenure. I did not want to be in a community of those people thinking the way they were thinking, old medical belief stuff, because my consciousness transcended that. I was beyond them. I, I was in epigenetics. Yeah. They didn't even know what epigenetics was. And, and epigenetics is personal empowerment. And with that personal empowerment, what did I do? I did what you did. I'm out of here. I cannot stay in an environment that beats me every day when I go in there. And people are finding this to be true right now in the COVID world when the whole job world is upside down. You know, what jobs are available, not available, blah, blah, blah. People are coming to decisions. And fortunately, many of them are saying exactly what I said. Well, I don't want to continue this job anymore because this job sucks. <laughs> it's draining me of my life. It's draining me of my energy. I don't, I don't have joy in my life by doing this job. And get, now, the beautiful part is many of them are in a situation going, well, I don't have that job, so I'm going to find a better job. I'm going to find a job that I want to do versus a job that I need to do. Want and need, that's very different. And those people are beginning to recognize who they really are. They're creating the world they want to live in by disconnecting from the world they were programmed to live in. And uh, both of us are on that track. And both of us end up having a much brighter future because personal empowerment is far better than being controlled. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I mean, this was like a mentor moment for me, this <laughs> conversation with you. Thank you. I think like, Wondering how I'm going to live my heaven on earth and not conforming and controlling my own fate. Right. And uh, thank you for giving me the courage. <laughs> and the one rule, if the first rule I would say to everybody, the first rule before any changes in your life are going to manifest is 
to be able to say you love yourself without feeling hesitant about saying that, to be able to look in that mirror and fully, honestly say, I love that person. Because if you love that person, then the rest of your life will maintain the love for that person. We will manifest the love if you believe in it. But if you look at that person, you don't have a lot of love for that person because of whatever criticisms, you know, well, then I'm going to say, well, you can't get there because immediately you shut yourself off saying, I can't have that because of my belief. And I go, well, change the belief, baby. What if the truth is we all deserve love? I mean, what if that was the ultimate truth <laughs> and then we just locked ourselves in, you know? It, 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 I'll just tell you, I might be wrong in everything I say, but I'm not wrong in this. I have the best life I could have ever imagined. Uh, uh, and especially not up to 40 something that I even have that life. But now I do. And I go, what was the difference? Do I believe in it? Yeah, I do. And I have it. And I wish everybody could have it because there's no better feeling than to wake up and go, I'm still here. I have another day here of heaven on earth. I'm going to go out and enjoy it. So I hope all of us out there go out and enjoy our day. I enjoy being with you, Michelle. And uh, again, I honor you for your integrity. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please subscribe and follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com.